Ladies and gentlemen, we're here today to seek truth, to seek justice. Are you here to confirm that Daredevil is responsible for this, Detective? What do you want? Justice. Welcome to Now Playing's Daredevil and Elektra Retrospective Series. Time to give the devil his due! Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. Devil is mine. Hosted by Jacob. You're good, baby. But me, I'm magic. Stuart. You know, you've exceeded all my expectations. And Arnie. I hate to see this guy's therapy bills. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. This is what I'm talking about. This is going to be great for business. And keep coming back as we continue to look at all the Marvel comic book movie adaptations. Sounds a little far-fetched, doesn't it? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. So listen if you dare. For your sake, I hope justice is found here today before justice finds you. Let's play! Top of the morning to you. Today we're discussing Daredevil, starring Ben Affleck, Jennifer Garner, Michael Clark Duncan, Colin Farrell, David Keith, and John Favreau, directed by Mark Steven Johnson. I'm Arnie, your podcast host without fear. Stuart in LA. Jacob in the hizzy. <laughs> Stuart, I know you love the Thing Alicia Masters blind love story. <laughs> so I'm, I'm yeah. sure you're going to love this movie. It's all about a blind guy. Not just a blind guy. Welcome back, Ben Affleck. You're <laughs> no. not playing. <laughs> I wish I was blind sometimes. <laughs> it's been a good nine months since we last gave you a good thrashing for a paycheck. And I got to say, you know, I love our fans. I think they're usually very supportive. But we took a lot of heat, didn't we, Jacob, when we yes. said that Affleck was not perhaps one of our strongest current thespians. It really brought the Affleck fans out in full force. And it made me approach this movie like, hmm, maybe I am just a little too tough. Maybe just needs to be a little bit more blind this time. Maybe I ought to give this guy a shot. So, you know what? I hit the reset button on Ben Affleck. I threw away all of my old impressions of Jiggly and what have you and just said, I'm going to pretend like I've never seen this man before and this is his first film as Daredevil. You did that for Daredevil, though? I mean, come on. If you're going to do that, why not try Hollywoodland or... See, I was able to reset my expectations because I've totally forgotten about Paycheck. <laughs> and you know what, guys? I wasn't on the paycheck one, but I'm not anti-Affleck. I think that sometimes he chooses interesting projects, and he can run the gamut. Sometimes he can be absolutely terrible, and other times he can be absolutely great. And Paycheck was in that early 2000s phase of his career where fame had gone to his head, and he chose Paycheck for the paycheck, and he was just making crap after crap after crap. Yeah, he won the Razzie this year, I think, for his triumvirate of this film, Gigli and Paycheck. But that film I forgot about, yes. <laughs> but way back with Goodwill Hunting, Chasing Amy, Mallrats, Days and Confused, I thought he was good in all of those. They, even as recent as The Town, I enjoyed him in The Town. The guy can act if he gets the right role. Exactly. It's all about the casting with him. I'm putting all of those perceptions away. I'll give the guy a fair shake. Daredevil is his day in court. Oh, that's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> You're tipping your hand a little bit too early about Daredevil, aren't you? No, just about Affleck's performance in Daredevil. <laughs> like I said, this was a bad time for Ben. 
Yes. Well, the best and the worst of times. He was breaking up with J-Lo on the positive and negative side of things. I think that really was tarnishing his reputation at that point. As soon as that sort of ended, I feel like, yes, it gave him a little bit more freedom to direct films and maybe step away from the paparazzi limelight so much that it kind of turned him into a douchebag. But this film has a different type of Benefer, the Benefer that would eventually get married and have offspring with Benefer Garner. That's true. And I got to say, I've never watched an episode of Alias. This is the only time I can remember ever seeing her. May I just say then, I come to the table as a huge Jennifer Garner fan. Of course you do, Arnie. I didn't watch Alias. I still haven't. Although, honestly, after rewatching Daredevil, I'm thinking I'm going to Netflix all of Alias. But everything from Dude Where's My Car to Ghost of Girlfriends Past and everything minus Electra in between, <laughs> I have enjoyed her in. I think she's an actress with great range. I think she can do action, comedy, romance. When we were back doing the Blade films, we kind of talked about Jessica Biel and how they never could find quite where to put her. And it's like Jennifer Garner is the more successful Jessica Biel. They do probably go up for the same roles. I do think of them in similar ways. You're onto something there. But I think that Garner actually succeeds, whereas Beale often seems uncomfortable in the role she's given. Weren't you the one defending Beale last time? Yes, I was. Her looks. Okay. <laughs> no, I, actually, you said she No, was that only- was us defending her looks. That was, yeah. <laughs> anyway. I have a funny story before we get into Daredevil, though. Now, this movie opened on February 14th. Valentine's Day? Yeah, this is the Valentine's Day movie of oh, that year. Oh, how appropriate for a new Benefer. That explains all the love relationships in this film now. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. I came into this a big Daredevil fan. Spider-Man had come out in 2002 and just really given me a voracious appetite for comic book movies. And Daredevil, I love Daredevil in comics. He seemed kind of like a knockoff Spider-Man. They hung out together a lot because they both like swing through the city and they're both agile they both wear red so they've got quite a bit in common and so when this came out do you have any idea how many favors i had to call in on my wife in order to spend valentine's day going to see daredevil opening night (laughs) it's just too bad they didn't cast daredevil as ryan reynolds then you would have been good (laughs) (laughs) she obviously doesn't hold the same affection for ben as uh, she does maybe hugh jackman she kind of shares your opinion of vaflack yes well So, yeah, I got to see this opening night, and I think it wasn't until Ghost Rider opened on Valentine's Day weekend several years later that it was forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) So Marvel is single-handedly trying to ruin a day of love, is what you're saying. (laughs) Pretty much. Breaking up couples the world over. That's funny. It's a strange choice to call this a romantic film. I guess there's an angle to that here, but usually I think of February as just being the dumping ground when you don't have a summer blockbuster or an Oscar contender. It kind of goes somewhere between January and early April. It's usually not a great sign of confidence, at least. Maybe not quality when you're dumping a movie in February. I agree with that, although there have been films that were put there, like the Friday the 13th remake, because it is a dead ground without a lot of competition and found a lot of financial success doing that. The cynic in me calls this counter-programming for lonely geeks. Thank you. I was about to call that out. You're a geek. You like comic books. You probably don't have a date on Valentine's (laughs) Day. Go see Daredevil. (laughs) I hate to play to that stereotype. At Comic-Con, there's lots of girls, hot girls. I mean, it's not always true. Perhaps the Comic-Con hookups could all go see Daredevil together. But yeah, that was kind of what went 
through my mind as I was trying to convince Marjorie to go with me to Daredevil is most of the audience didn't have to do the shenanigans to get there. And still, I think it's telling that they didn't put this out in summer. It doesn't seem to me that they have the same level of confidence with this that they did, say, Spider-Man or X-Men. He's not as well known. I know of Daredevil. I'm the comic book newbie. I heard of him, but I don't think I even knew he was blind. <laughs> that's kind of his thing. So you, yeah. you didn't know much about him. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm telling you, I guess. <laughs> I, I got to say, I will put him on the C list, maybe a C plus list of popularity and characters. But he does have a hardcore following. I mean, Frank Miller, who's huge in the comic book world, he probably defined this character. And as you get into this movie, a lot of stuff from that Frank Miller Daredevil run. But even Kevin Smith, I mean, at one point in time, he was able to put comics out on a regular basis and he did some Daredevil comics. So some big names associated with this character as far as creators go. And Kevin Smith, you could trace a lot of this movie back to him because he was writing Daredevil before this point. A lot of the imagery from his comics made it into this movie. He is, of course, great friends with Ben Affleck, made several movies together, got Ben Affleck this job. Oh, oh, (laughs) okay. So yet another reason to dislike Kevin Smith. (laughs) And then, of course, he's in the movie, too. He he pops up near the end. Yeah, but Frank Miller has a cameo here, too. I always took it as Kevin Smith being here was friend of Ben. But now that I know more about comics than I did in 03, they spent a lot of time in this movie name-dropping and cameoing comic creators from Daredevil's past. Oh, all over the place, yes. It's distracting how much, in fact. Yes, if you know the creators, like, I'm sitting there writing each one down. It's all over the place in this film. This film was written for comic book nerds. One wonders why Kevin Smith didn't actually direct the film, if he's that into the character. Daredevil doesn't make enough dick jokes? Because they had the director from Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men? I mean... (laughs) Clearly more qualified! Wait a second, he did not direct those films, he wrote them. The only other film this guy directed is one that I actually really like, Simon Birch. Uh, Okay. I didn't say I could respect myself for liking it. I understand it's sappy melodrama, but it's enjoyable sappy melodrama. To be fair, I never saw the movie, but I can honestly say that neither Kevin Smith nor that resume would lead me to believe that they were ready to take on a major blockbuster action kung fu superhero project, but here we are. I do have to say, when I did go into this, my expectations were very tempered. I mean, I had said I was really hyped from Spider-Man, and I was, but I realized this was made on a really tight budget. And the trailers, I knew this was going to be cheapo. I just went in hoping if I couldn't get the high I wanted off Spider-Man, I was just hoping for a quick fix to hold me over till Spider-Man 2. I think Fox was treating this very much like the first X-Men. We're not going to dole it all out until we're sure the audience is there. If the audience is there, we'll give them something more spectacular next time. Yeah, Marvel was on a roll. The Two Blades, Spider-Man, X-Men 1 and 2. So Daredevil had a good chance of succeeding. And this was, I believe, the second film with that flipping Marvel logo. First one to add the little page flip sounds. So it was a good time to try. Now, there's two versions of Daredevil. There's a director's cut. That's actually the version that I saw. And then there's whatever you saw opening night on Valentine's Day, Arnie. I watched the theatrical cut. I never saw this in the theaters. I saw it when it came out on video. That was the original theatrical cut. And when I watched it for this now playing show, I watched the theatrical cut again. I watched both, being the multimedia guy. And... I've seen the theatrical cut many, many times. This was my first time watching the director's cut. And there's a lot of 
difference between the two, and this is one of those rare cases where it truly is a director's cut. They sometimes use that term a little loosely, and I think they've now started calling them extended cuts. With, say, Fantastic Four, it's not that Tim's story was sitting around going, I really need that flower scene back in. It was more Fox saying, hey, how can we get some more money out of Fantastic Four with Fantastic Four 2 coming out? Let's release a different cut of the film. People love that. In this case, the studio really hampered Daredevil's production, plus the MPAA gave it an R rating. They forced the director to cut about a half an hour out and get it down to 100 minutes, and the bonus features on the director's cut basically have him saying how disappointed he was with the cut he was forced to deliver and that the editors did, and this truly is the director's vision of Daredevil as the director's cut. So I've seen both, and I'll talk about the details as they go through, and they're actually fairly major. A lot of the problems, I think, of the theatrical cut are fixed in the director's cut. I'm interested in hearing that then because I've got some problems with this story, the way it's played out in the theatrical cut. Oh no, and I got, I was saying maybe the director was wrong and the studio was right. So uh, Arnie, we'll be looking to you. Why don't you start us off with a plot summary for both, I guess. Yeah, it's a little tricky of a plot to summarize when you have two and there's an entire subplot starring Coolio that doesn't yes. even exist <laughs> in the main version. I know I saw the theatrical cut thing because I would have recognized Coolio. Prize fighter Jack Murdoch could have been a contender, but instead he ended up a single father and an enforcer for Fallon, a gangster in Hell's Kitchen. When his son Matt discovers Jack's illegal employment, Matt runs off into a construction yard, causing an accident in which radioactive chemicals are sprayed in his face. As a result, Matt goes blind, but finds his other four senses heightened more than even the average blind person. His sense of hearing is so acute it gives him a radar sense, and his sense of touch so sensitive it gives him incredible agility, balance, and speed. Matt and Jack try to make a go of it, but when Jack refuses to throw a fight for Fallon, Matt is murdered by a mysterious criminal who we later find to be Wilson Fisk, played by Michael Clark Duncan. Fast forward 20 years and Matt, now played by Ben Affleck, is now a criminal lawyer by day running a ragtag law firm that only takes cases from innocent clients. And by night, Matt is the daredevil, a vigilante clad in red leather dispensing street justice to those who fall through the cracks in the legal system. But Daredevil's work is getting harder as Fisk is rising to be the kingpin of crime, the head of all organized crime in New York. Kingpin's involvement causes even more criminals to be let loose, and crime runs rampant through Hell's Kitchen. More, Matt is lonely, his hyperacute senses and his after-hours activities preventing him from forming many close human relationships, until one day in a coffee shop, he encounters Electra Nachios, played by Jennifer Garner. Electra is a highly skilled martial artist, just like Matt, and the daughter of Nicholas Nachios, a billionaire in the employ of the Kingpin. However, reporter Ben Urich, played by Joey Pants, is on the trail of the Kingpin, and the heat is getting too much for Nicholas, so he wants out. But there is no out for Nicholas, as Fisk has his assistant Wesley set up a paper trail showing Nicholas to be the Kingpin, and then hires Irish assassin Bullseye, played by Colin Farrell, to kill Nicholas and his daughter Electra. Daredevil tries to save Nicholas, but Bullseye kills him using Daredevil's billy club, causing Elektra to think Daredevil is the assassin, ending in a three-way fight on a rooftop. Elektra stabs Daredevil through the shoulder, but when she unmasks the vigilante and sees her boyfriend, she believes that he is not the killer, but she believes it a little too late as Bullseye arrives and stabs Elektra with her own sigh. 
Daredevil takes out Bullseye, who reveals the Kingpin's identity as Wilson Fisk, so Daredevil goes to confront the crime boss who killed his father. A brutal fight ensues and Daredevil is unmasked, but he defeats Wilson and Wilson is unable to reveal Daredevil's identity lest it be known he was beaten in a fistfight by a blind man. And the police come for Wilson due to an entire deleted subplot available in the director's cut, where Matt's partner, Foggy Nelson, played by John Favreau, represents a man accused of murdering a prostitute. Through investigation, Matt and Foggy realized the prostitute was actually the lover of Fisk's assistant Wesley, and when she started leaking information about the kingpin to Ben Urich, Wesley killed her. When the police come for Wesley, he agrees to a plea where he will reveal information about the kingpin. And at the end, Ben Urich discovers Matt's identity, but chooses to keep it a secret so Daredevil can continue to protect the streets of Hell's Kitchen. Now, Jacob, this is the comic book movie I can think of that most closely follows an arc from the comics, doesn't it? Isn't this whole Daredevil, Bullseye, Electric Kingpin thing straight out of the Frank Miller comics? Oh yeah, this whole movie is pretty close to the comics. I mean, the origin story is pretty close. This triangle between Daredevil, Bullseye, and Elektra, and Elektra's death, that was a huge story in the Frank Miller comic. I mean, Marvel at one time said that they would not bring Elektra back to life unless they got Frank Miller's permission. That's how big of a deal it was. They eventually broke that promise. But, I mean, some of the shots in this film are straight out of some of the Frank Miller comics. So, yes, there's a lot of things in here. For people who like very tight adaptations of their stories, then you'll like that about this movie. Now, I got questions. Like I said, I've heard of Daredevil before. I didn't read him. When was he invented? And... At least from watching this movie, I got a strong sense that this may, in fact, be Marvel's attempt at Batman, right? Daredevil was invented in the 60s, and the original version, it was a lot lighter tone. Once Frank Miller took over, it took on this darker, noir tone. But originally, he was running around in a yellow and red costume. He adapted from his father's robe that he wore when he would go to his boxing matches. So he even had a sidekick at one time, Yeah, and Batman does that as well. There's always these geek debates, you know, who is the super... Superman of Marvel, and who's the Spider-Man of DC? When people ask, you know, who is the Batman of the Marvel Universe? This is one of the characters that gets brought up because he is this martial artist. As a lawyer, he's always looking for clues, and he's solving the case, so he has that detective aspect. You know, he doesn't have all the gadgets. Sometimes people say Iron Man is the Batman of Marvel because of all of his gadgets, and he's a billionaire, but there's definitely a sense of Batman. I can definitely say that watching this movie, I was getting strong vibes from particularly the Tim Burton movie. I'm right there with you, Stuart. When I first saw this film, Tim Burton's Batman was the first thing that came to mind. And that's really funny because I didn't see that at all. But now that you're talking about it, I do see it. But I guess it's just because I'm familiar with Daredevil. I actually did read the comics. And, you know, he was brooding long before Tim Burton's Batman. It's very telling, though, that these are both, in many ways, Frank Miller creations. Back when we did X-Men, I said how it was Chris Claremont's run on X-Men that really made X-Men successful, not Stan Lee, who created it. With Daredevil, again, Stan Lee created it. But, yeah, he was, as Jacob said, sea level is very polite to Daredevil until Frank Miller came along. <laughs> and Frank Miller really took this character that had kind of limped around for over a hundred issues and not really formed an identity and turned him into something. Well, Frank Miller is also the author, I think, Jacob, correct me if I'm wrong, of The Dark Knight Returns. Correct, which is the big influence for Tim Burton's first Batman film, at least aesthetically, and we'll maybe talk about that in another retrospective. So they have the same writer as an origin, and so 
whether this was Marvel sitting around saying we want to rip him off or even the movie creator sitting around saying we're going to rip off Tim Burton or the fact that they just go back to the same source from the same author, you know, it becomes very incestuous at that point. Well, it's kind of about all who gets there first. And because for people that don't read the comics, their first experience, I would imagine most people are going to have seen the 1989 Batman before they're ever going to get to Daredevil. It's a whole lot of deja vu. I'll tell you what it made me think about. You guys ever see Mac and Me? Yes. Yes. (laughs) The McDonald's E.T.? Yes, exactly. (laughs) You watch Mac and Me, it's... The same thing as E.T., except Elliot's crippled. And they got, like, half the budget to get through. And, the, yeah, there's some horrible McDonald's product placement. I think Coke actually brings Mac back to life. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's littered with horrible product placement. But it does feel like a dime store disabled version of E.T. And I got to say, getting into Daredevil, this is the Mac and me of Batman. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I want to be that mean to Daredevil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, let's just go through it. Because, you know, by the time we establish that his father gets killed by a man that leaves a rose in the alley and all of that, I'm like, we saw this movie, right? I mean, who do they think they're playing at this point? And all right, now that really did strike me as Batman. As far as that plot goes, you know, Kingpin creates Daredevil and all of that. It was very Batman Joker-ish in that it's contrived. (laughs) <laughs> to, to the point of being, I would argue, offensive. Like, do you think I'm stupid? Do you think I'm not going to see how close this is visually, narratively, in every way to Batman? After this flashback, we never see Fallon again, and he's kind of the reason that Matt's dad died. Do you think that's a missed opportunity, or is it just good enough that we have the kingpin? Because I kind of expected to see the old man get his comeuppance, although he would have been really old 20 years later. He's Jack Palance. He's just here to be the guy to mentor the villain we care about. He's a functional villain, but he's not a villain we need to see punished. Well, I'm just going to give this movie some credit because it's sticking to the origins, the whole father-son relationship where the father was this thug for the mob and decides to try to clean up his act once his son is injured and go back to the boxing round. I was getting a Rocky vibe. Absolutely. I mean... and. I'm a fan of Rocky. Hopefully we get to do a retrospective of that someday. But, you know, Rocky, working for the mob, decides to go back into boxing and become a contender. I mean, I was actually kind of really liking this father-son relationship. Matt's hitting the books and his father's hitting the punching bag. I liked it. It was like Rocky meets over the top. But are you telling me that this is from the comic, actually? They weren't ripping off Rocky? This came first? Yeah, that's the comic's origin. I mean, maybe Rocky was ripping off Daredevil. Maybe Stallone was a huge Daredevil fan. I doubt it. (laughs) Stallone doesn't read. Not even comic books. (laughs) Hey, he wrote that, though. But, hey, this has David Keith or Keith David, one of them, as the boxer. And I always like seeing him. Yeah, which one is which? One's black, one's white, and you just all you got to do is reverse the names. <laughs> it's Keith David, right? No, this one's David Keith. Damn it! <laughs> we'll get to Keith David with Thing. Yes. I got to ask, since we're dealing with the backstory, does he get the powers in this way in the comic book? Because I really felt this was a very clumsy origin. I like some of this setup. I like the idea of old New York Hell's Kitchen. You know, this is kind of where Gangs of New York happened. The whole Irish mob 
presence there. I was kind of digging all that, but I gotta say, the moment they introduced toxic waste that splashes in his eyes, I groaned. In the comic, again, it's the 60s. Toxic waste gave everyone powers. Radiation was a good thing back then. And he gets splashed in the face. It enhances his other senses while blinding him. That is from the comic. Of course it is. Of course it is. Every Marvel comic started like Godzilla. But, you know, while he's learning his powers, Stan Lee cameo. Oh, yeah, I picked this one out. Kind of funny, I guess. Actually reminded me more of Matt Murdock's origin story, because in the original comics, what he does is he saves a blind guy from an oncoming car that has this radioactive stuff in the back that swerves and hits him. And here you see it's kind of reversed blind Matt Murdock as a child saving Stan Lee from getting hit by a truck. But what I felt is that the backstory here was completely obligatory, you know, and it almost feels like they shouldn't have done it. They should have ripped off Batman in one other way, because with Batman, what I was thinking was they start that movie off and he's Batman and he's beating up a thug. And then like halfway through, Vicky Vale gets the revelation that his parents were killed in that alley. Well, here, we spend a good 20 or 30 minutes, depending on your cut of the film, back in the 70s, it seems, or maybe 80s, getting this whole backstory set up of how he trained and how he was splashed in the eye and how his father was killed. And I realized a half an hour into this film that the plot hadn't started yet. And I think that might have been a narrative mistake. No, this is all being told in flashback. And I'm wondering why. I mean, the film starts off with Daredevil hugging the cross straight out of the comics, and he falls down through the church. The priest is tending to his wounds. And then it goes on this big, long flashback until we catch up with this towards the third act. And I'm right there with you, Arnie. I'm thinking, why does this need to be told in a flashback? If you're just going to move straight forward now, this narrative just doesn't make sense. Particularly if you're not going to do it very well. I mean, the whole (laughs) staging of the actual canister spritzing his face, his first fight with Bull is laughable. And even the whole thing about how his father dies, it should be pointed out how absurd this is. They tell him he's got to take a dive because he's a 42-year-old boxer. Wouldn't you make more money by betting on the long shot and letting him live and let the young guy take a dive? Well, they done that. They said that they did that with Bendis and several of the other writer boxers. Miller, Mack. <laughs> yes. And now this fight was against John Romita, who's another <laughs> artist for Daredevil. So now the odds are in the devil's favor. You, it's actually the long bet is on the young guy against the 43-year-old man. Yeah, because he's won so many in a row against long odds that he's seen as ferocious and unbeatable. I, I see. Okay. But I thought he had only just gotten good. But it kind of skips over some it's stuff. It's a montage. We don't know how yes. much time passes. True enough. I just don't feel like any of this is handled very well. So the less the better. Yeah, we only handled this in flashback, or if we had had the Vicky Vale character, which is now played by Joe Pantoliano from The Matrix, if he had been the one to dig up all of this stuff and we learned it in retrospect, I think that would have been a stronger way to play it, because I'm just not sucked into the world in the beginning here. I agree with you for two reasons. First, as I said, they need to get the story moving. They need to get Elektra in here, because she is the plot of this movie. It's Elektra entering Matt's life that changes it. And she comes in at 40 minutes. I was looking at the counter. 40 minutes. On the director's cut, that's right. And we need to get there quicker. And second, I'm a huge Joey Pants fan. I mean, he's usually a minor character, but in everything from Risky Business to The Matrix to The Fugitive... 
I love this man. So I would have loved to see his role beefed up and actually given him something to do, because here it feels like he was on set for about four days. There are many other ways they could have told this backstory that wouldn't have taken nearly as long, would have been much more convincing. And considering that we really don't go back to this again, I guess it's pivotal to establish the father's death. You could have done that, I suppose, but uh, much of this is taken too long. It's funny, Arnie, you say that the plot is Electra, because I'm still wondering what the plot of this movie is, and I guess they go and show this origin story because this whole time Daredevil's been trying to find the murderer for his father. Like, I never got that set. Like, this movie's all over the place. We'll get into it. But I don't know what the plot of this movie is. It seems to always be shifting. That's why I hope maybe this director's cut would help me figure out what's going on. The way I take the plot of this movie is to be a character story about Matt Murdock, who, through tragedy as a child, became this defender of Hell's Kitchen trying to fight for right, you know, quote unquote right, whatever that necessarily is, and has become, you know, his own judge, jury, and executioner. But he's hardened. I mean, when we get to the first modern day fight where he's taking out Joe Casada. Or is it Jose Casada in this, I guess? Joe Casada, another Daredevil artist, and now the editor-in-chief at Marvel. Yes, and now he's a rapist in the Daredevil film. <laughs> but he kind of raped Mary Jane, but I digress. So he l- kills him, right? I mean, he throws him on the train tracks and kills him. Yes, and I have a problem with this. And it's not just because of the cheesy line, those aren't the lights of heaven you're seeing, <laughs> that's the sea train. Yeah, he should have been more clever. I, I was really yes. like, that's your line? <laughs> it's the sea train? It's very literal. But the evolution is him reconnecting with humanity and realizing he's not the bad guy, a line that he says multiple times throughout the film. Yes, and I finally figured out, I guess that was the main plot that was his story arc, which it seems like I'm the one that's always complaining about when these heroes act unheroically and kill people. It's something that bothers me. But I could go with this if this was like Daredevil year one, and this was his first time out, and he kills this guy, and then immediately he has that reaction from the child that he's scared of him, and he goes on this soul-searching trip. Hey, I need to focus more on being a great lawyer so I can carry out justice. One of the common themes in the comic books is Daredevil versus the Punisher, that the Daredevil's always trying to convince the Punisher that killing these people is not the right thing. You need to bring them to justice in a court of law that's recognized by society. And that was the whole Daredevil's point is that, yes, he would catch these crooks and find more evidence as a vigilante so they could be prosecuted in court. So I understand that, I guess this movie, that's the Daredevil's story arc, that he goes from murderer to deciding how to carry out real justice. I just feel that it was executed very clumsy, and it doesn't work for me in this film. You don't realize it until the very end when he says, I'm the good guy, that that was the story arc. I agree with you, Jacob. And after that scene, we get our introduction to Ben Yurick, played by Joe Pantoliono. I think he's playing like the Robert Wool role here in this. And Kim Basinger. It's kind of all rolled <laughs> up in one. The ugliness of Robert Wool with the functionality of Vicky Vale. But his introduction is very similar to, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? And if so, is he on the police payroll? That whole scene. But I'm very curious, because the police officer's like, there's no such thing as Daredevil. Yurik throws a match, and two big flaming Ds come out of the ground, making me think, so Daredevil let this guy get hit by a train, and then he stood around and very carefully poured gasoline in a shape in the hope someone lights a match? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It, Keep it in mind, cool. that person is blind. <laughs> <laughs> but 
he's got the scent of smell. He can smell those straight lines, I guess. There are so many smells in a New York subway. I really don't think even Daredevil would be able to sniff out a double D. <laughs> they need that cool scene for the trailer to hook you into the trailer. That's all I remember from the trailer was the double D's and flames. It yeah, makes it's the bat signal. I mean, you need to have that moment, but... But it's stolen straight from the crow. I won't defend it. But the one thing that's pretty clear here that they are playing with imagery all the time is that when they're talking about Daredevil, they're talking about satanic figure. And I didn't get that. When you said Daredevil the superhero, I would have thought it would have been like Evil Knievel, stunt guy, you know, guy that takes risks, a wild card. I didn't necessarily think that we would have him hanging on crucifixes and, you know, living in Hell's Kitchen, which it's called Clinton. Now, he even has to admit that. He's like, well, they changed the name and the neighborhood's cleaned up, but I'm still the devil of Hell's <laughs> Kitchen. Post Giuliani, New York's just not so much fun for superheroes. It sure isn't. And, and, <laughs> and this movie suffers for that because, Arnie, I don't know about you, I was having exorcist flashbacks here. I was just like, man, some of this movie feels straight out of the freaking bloody Yeah, world. I would see that with all of the religious iconography, which is heavily amped up in the director's cut, might I add. Oh, okay. There is less of that in the theatrical cut. In the director's cut, it's a practical subplot of Matt's priest trying to get him to go to church on Sunday. And Yes, it is. And I think that that is the way that the director is trying to tell us that this superhero, quote-unquote, is a bad guy. By playing into devilish imagery, we're supposed to think of him as a sinister figure, that the fact that Matt has to resort to him is a bad thing. But that never really plays out that way except in these little touches and I think that's hard to do when you're creating a introductory storyline about a superhero that we're not supposed to like I mean I think that's counterintuitive and Stuart, you're not wrong to have that Daredevil as doing stunts type of interpretation because that's really what the original meaning of Daredevil was in the comics. And again, it wasn't till Miller came along. And yes, it was established that Matt Murdock was Catholic, but Miller really played up the Catholicism and so did Kevin Smith. Miller said that only a Catholic could be both a vigilante and a lawyer at the same time, go after justice in these two totally opposite ways. So that's something that's really brought about in the comic in the 80s. And I wish that was played up more. I think that's an interesting aspect to have this superhero. For me, a lot of superheroes, they're there to replace God or they're there at least in a mythological sense. So it would be interesting to have a superhero that kind of struggles with that. Where, you know, people are supposed to have faith in this God and that this God will save them. But here I am taking the place. I am the messianic figure. That would be an interesting movie to me to see that struggle. Good news, bad news, Jacob. It is there in the director's cut. There's a lot more of it. But Ben Affleck is still playing. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) And for some reason, though... It's Bullseye who gets stigmata and keeps getting the crucified pose. He keeps holding his arms out. And Elektra does, too. She gets it through the hands. Yeah, that's true. So everybody gets stigmata but Daredevil. (laughs) And there's also this weird scene in the director's cut, though, that I just have to call out while we're talking about religious iconography. Daredevil goes to sleep in his little hyperbolic chamber and is visited by a vision of a nun. Yeah. I had to look this up because it was weird. Like, the nun was laying on him, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Kisses him and tells him to go to sleep. Yeah. And it's never brought up again. 
This is from the comics. Frank Miller. There is this vision about his mother who died earlier, and Daredevil sees her. He has visions of her as a nun. So I, I'm guessing that's what it was a nod to. Yeah, that that was it. But man, it makes no sense in this movie. None. I mean, even in the director's cut, that scene, even though they were really playing up the religious angle, that was nonsense because it just didn't fit. It's like very weird. It had to be cut. It should have been in no version of this movie. It's alarmingly anachronistic with the rest of what's going on here. While he was going to sleep and the nun was talking to him, he was in this hyperbolic chamber. Is it safe to sleep in a couple feet of water? Because I think that's a recipe for drowning. Well, no, this is a real thing. I was really nervous for him. <laughs> but, you know, you are supposed to float on top. Uh, usually there's enough saline in the solution that you just won't sink. Yeah, it's a sense deprivation tank, which makes sense. I mean, they do experiments on people where they spend days in these and go crazy because they can't feel anything, hear anything. I mean, it makes sense for a guy who has heightened senses. If he wants to get any sleep, he's got to be able to cut off all sound. I love this as a character trait. Maybe less than how it's integrated with this storyline, but I really think that that's really neat. If you have someone who has enhanced hearing and this was a really neat way for him to shut out the world. Yeah, I mean, it makes it so he has absolutely no contact. Of course, when he wakes up, he hears all the sounds of the world around him. And so his way of shutting that out was by playing metal music at max volume on what looked like a very expensive stereo. I would think if you had heightened hearing by the time that song was over, you wouldn't anymore. (laughs) Artie, I just got to correct you. It is not metal. This is new metal. If you guys remember the turn of the millennium, new metal. When I think of Daredevil, you know, Evanescence, that's what I think of the most. And this music is throughout here. It just ages this movie so badly. This movie created Evanescence. Evanescence songs were in this movie before they were on the radio. (laughs) And there's two of them on here. Every Evanescence song you ever need, Daredevil soundtrack. Because you own that, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because I needed two Evanescence songs, and there we go. Plus, I'm a Drowning Pool fan. Well, I'm not. So I got to say, most of the soundtrack, I experienced the gritted teeth. I was like Daredevil underneath the bells. I'm like, please turn it off. But, you know, I'm just too old for this kind of stuff. I don't go for this kind of metal. It just has always been a little cheesy for me. So I'm liking this aspect of about it. I like this. I've got to ask, the splash, obviously it improved his hearing. Is it what gives him agility? Is he superhuman in his abilities to do flips and that? kind of thing. In the film, they basically say because he has super touch now that he's got really great balance and I assume that's what lets him be able to do flips. They don't really explain it and again, in the comic, he goes through all these martial arts training. Now, it helps that he has this very sensitive touch and he very good control over his body, but they really just kind of gloss over that in this movie. I didn't know all the other senses were improved. That's interesting. Yes, all of them. Oh. Yeah, I would have loved a scene where he's like having a drink of water and he's like, what is this? It's so fantastic. I mean, so if you really want to get Daredevil, you just eat a can of beans and let one rip. <laughs> you see, he doesn't like smokers very much in one scene, too. I mean, he it, shouldn't live in Hell's Kitchen if he doesn't like smokers. I didn't get that. I agree. Stay out of Manhattan if you don't like aromatic intrigue. <laughs> Now, my last question about his powers is he's described, I think, a multiple times, both in comics and in this movie, as a man without fear. Is that a power <laughs> or is he just naive? I think because his name is Daredevil and like on issue one, it was like they gave everybody a subtitle. He was the man without fear. In the comics I've read, they've never really played it out. I mean, there's never a scene where he's quivering in his boots or anything, but neither does Mr. Fantastic or... Which annoys me with this film because that's one of the big plot points is that Bullseye is going to teach him fear and that's how he's going to defeat the Daredevil, which, no, never happens. Kills his girlfriend, but he doesn't really 
really scare him. It just makes him mad. No, there's this line. How do you kill a man without fear? Well, I'd say a bullet. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same or lightning, the same thing that happens to everybody else. <laughs> All right. So it's not really a power. It's just sort of a tagline. Yeah. Because I kind of think of him as the man without shame, but when he puts on that outfit. You're going to attack the outfit? Can we talk about the suit? (laughs) Okay, I'm here to defend the suit. I'm going to defend the suit, too. Okay. I like the suit. You like this suit? Yes. If you saw this person fighting crime, you would not call the dominatrix, not the police. This <laughs> looks like something that involves chains and wits. Again, this is coming straight out of Burton's Batman, which is all about latex suits. I mean, they have the S&M themes there, especially when you get into Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. Definitely. What's wrong with the suit? Do you want him wearing a wetsuit like Kick-Ass? I think he looks like an asshole. I don't know how else how to put it. If you show up in that suit, you are an asshole. It's like wearing a too tight Ed Hardy shirt. It's like, oh, what an asshole. You know, just no. But here's the thing. We talked about this with X-Men. It is always hard to take an iconic character and translate them. And you got your choices. You can go Spider-Man and put him in the tights and just say, yep, he's in tights. I think they kind of went the X-Men route, where they put him in black leather. Here, they toned down the red, because he's far redder in the comics, and put him in a leather garb. I think it's just taking a cue from X-Men, how do we take a ridiculous-looking outfit if somebody were to be walking down the street in it, and try (laughs) to make it somewhat functional? By using leather, you know, it protects you somewhat. I mean, that's why bikers wear leather, is for when they crash. It has somewhat of an armoring effect. Did he, or did he not have an eye slits. That's what I couldn't tell, because there was something different about the eyes, but we know he's blind. (laughs) Yes, there are eye slits, but he doesn't want to give away that he's blind. Okay. That's the whole thing. During the day, everyone knows he's a blind lawyer, so if you got a blind superhero going around, (laughs) you can start adding things up. Yes, because there's only one blind man in all of Hell's Kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And no one is to understand that this is a guy in a suit. They're to think he's actually a demon, right? I mean... No, they know it's a guy in a suit. I didn't ever get that sense. You know, in Batman, yes, they play that up, that people think he's this actual demon. But if they were going for that in this film, they never played it up. I didn't get that sense. No, because you look like an asshole! Listen, I think that, again, they did the best thing they could here. The same thing with Elektra. Elektra's known for wearing red silk. Here, she's wearing black leather. I think it's the X-Men version, and you didn't call Hugh Jackman an asshole for wearing the black leather. No, but that haircut I did. (laughs) I think the suit is fine. I think the suit is the perfect splitting the difference between putting him in bright red spandex to be true to the comic and putting him in street clothes. It was true enough to the character and yet functional in a real world. And I never once thought he looked like an asshole. Although I will say it's a special feature that Michael Clark Duncan did say Ben Affleck looked like an asshole. Did he really? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I just can't wait to see Ben in that suit because they worked together on Armageddon so they knew each other and things. He's like, I'm just going to bust up laughing when Ben walks in in that. (laughs) Maybe that's why the lighting is so dim in this movie. They they really wanted to play down how he looked in this year. But I didn't have a problem with that. I, I'm with you, Arnie. If, if you're going to do a realistic take as far as movies go and how to make that work, I'd rather go the X-Men route with this character than the Spider-Man route. In the end, these are iconography for the character. And it's like Superman. I mean, every time you make Superman, it's a question of, do you put him in Lycra? So you got to figure out what to do. I think that they did fine here. I almost wish, though, they'd gone bigger on the horn. 
horns. I thought the horns were just little nubbins there. There was a modesty to this. I think that you're right, Jacob. They wanted to play him as an actual devil demon creature. They would have done it bigger. He would have been redder, fiercer. They didn't make those choices. I gotta say, if you don't want people to conclude that he's actually blind, why would you make his utility belt a seeing cane? Like, it's the cane he's walking around with in the day is the same thing he's using to do all these cool things at night. That kind of bothers me. And it's burgundy. Like, you'll remember it. (laughs) Which is a plot point in here that is very rememberable. Yeah, Ben Yurick makes a comment about the color. Yeah, pretty incriminating. In the comic, he uses a billy club, which is, you know, kind of like a... I don't know what a billy club is. I'm no martial artist, but I didn't think it was his walking stick in the comic. Yeah, maybe that's a movie choice. Maybe it's just because he has it with him at all times. Does he have the suit packed in it as well? (laughs) Maybe he wears it under his lawyer suit. (laughs) Where does he get all of these wonderful toys, to to borrow a phrase? One thing I was really surprised at here is we understand that he's blind. Yes, he has a sonar vision that gives him sort of a wobbly, if things are noisy, reverberation vision. Like, he's as blind as a bat, man, and he can kind of sonar (laughs) see things. But... Truly, he can't make this stuff. He can't go to a shop and buy this stuff. I was surprised he did not have a henchman, an Alfred the butler, if you will, to enable him to do all this. Because he's sure as hell not making any money. He came from Hell's Kitchen, and he's doing pro bono cases and losing them, and then having to go (laughs) beat up the people that should have gone to jail. Hey, Matt Murdock was a straight-A student in middle school. Obviously, he took woodshop and sewing. (laughs) Listen, again, the outfit, there's a lot of buzz going around about the new Spider-Man movie coming out next summer. Where's he getting his outfit from? Sometimes you got to give the movie the mulligan, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to make this podcast about an outfit. It's about the man in the suit, really. And let's talk about him. How'd Ben do? Blind lawyer? Sure. Martial (laughs) artist? Absolutely. I mean, I buy him in anything. This is terrible. We can admit that this Razzie is deserved, yes? Yes. No. Oh! Arnie, this is indefensible. Arnie, explain yourself. Even Ben Affleck agrees that this movie is an embarrassment. He has gone on record. Stuart, let's turn it over to the defense. Okay. Let's have the defense make their case. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth? (laughs) Swear motherfucking God you're not going to just out of good graces for Armageddon, give him a pass? Listen, I'm going to say this. He's bad. But he's not Razzie bad, and I think the Razzie came more for Gigli than anything else. And the way that the Raspberries are awarded, it's not actor and movie like the Academy Awards. It's actor for body of work in a year. And because this came out in that year, he got it. If this movie hadn't come out in that year, he'd still have gotten it for Gigli. If Paycheck hadn't come out, he'd still have gotten it for Gigli. Does he deserve a Raspberry for his performance as Daredevil? Absolutely not. Is it great? Hell's Kitchen, no. But it is not Razzie worthy. It is just subpar. So you're splitting hairs here. What you're trying to tell me is it's not the worst performance of the year. It's merely terrible. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. You asked me to swear to tell the truth, and there's the truth. (laughs) Then I will give you that case. We will settle out of court, and you can have that. But I think we're all on the same page here. If this is the guy and that is the suit, I'm out the door. This is not a hero I can follow. I got to say, you know, he loses this case at the beginning of the film. I know why. I don't buy Ben Affleck as a smart lawyer, no matter how many heartbeats he could read. I don't buy him as this triple flipping 
martial artist and the bad CGI doesn't help Mm -mm. convince me of that either. It's the wrong person in this role. In every capacity, he fails. Even this relationship with a woman that he's really with, even now. And I don't believe there's any chemistry between them. (laughs) He's not working in any way that this role needs to. I disagree with that. I think there are many ways in which he works. I think that he's subpar most of the time, but in the lawyering scenes, I thought he was flat, but I never didn't believe it. I never thought this is the guy who should be out working the construction site in Goodwill Hunting. I believed him enough to be a lawyer and when he was in the suit and he was fighting, I thought that was pretty well done. I mean, he did well stunts and I thought that the romance Garner carried that whole thing for me. I'm going to be honest with you. There's several scenes I can call out specifically where Ben was dropping the ball and Garner was carrying the weight for two. I don't think he ever picked up the ball in this movie. Yeah, Arnie, you're not convincing me. What you keep saying is he's not the worst person they could have put in this. I'm saying he's not that bad. I'm not saying he's out the door bad. But you're not saying he's even passable. He's close to passable. Which is underpassable, which is not (laughs) succeeding. He is a hole in this movie, and a fatal one, I would argue. There's where we disagree. We both agree he's a hole, and what I'm trying to argue is he's not a fatal hole. He's not terrible to the point of killing the film, which is what you've both said. Artie, if everyone else was A actors in this, and it was a great story, maybe I would be okay with him, but I'm not buying anything about him in this film. Every little smirk he had, like, he's playing Ben Affleck with some glazed contact lenses to make him look blind. I just don't think he's acting in this film. No, and you know what? I'm so grateful because for many years he was listed as the next Batman when they were going to reboot Batman and do Batman Year One with Aronofsky and then of course eventually with Nolan. He was always the one listed at the top of the list and this movie put him off superheroes. He didn't want to do another superhero movie. So if I'm grateful for nothing else about Daredevil, it's the fact that we don't have a Nolan trilogy with him at the center. And I remember reading that even Matt Damon was up for the role in this film. And maybe it's because I've seen the Bourne movies and I've seen his physicality and I've seen him be a smart ass genius and, you know, goodwill hunting again. I mean, that's someone that could have pulled this off. Affleck doesn't do it. Affleck was a poor casting choice. Near fatal, I would argue. And that's being nice. I do think that they surrounded him with the right cast. Let's talk about Jennifer Gardner, who's in this movie far too little. She is great in this movie. As bad as Ben is, she brings the game. Every moment she's in, she plays it pitch perfect. Can anyone be great in this part playing Electra Nachios? Did I say that right? In the director's <laughs> cut, I do like that Foggy said it sounds like a Mexican appetizer. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. That was my favorite joke in the movie. (laughs) Yes. Electra Nachios. I feel like she was handed a real bad bag of goods and she showed up and you know she looks great does she look greek though that's my biggest problem they kind of gave her little hair twirls and you know they they, (laughs) there was some costuming and makeup choices that tried to present the idea of greek mythology well keep in mind at this point she was primarily known for alias right absolutely what got her to gig right yeah I i think that by bringing someone in who can do the stunts was a big thing and also bringing somebody in who can be playful and be flirty and also do tragedy as she does later arnie are you saying that kung fu fight where they connect 
with yeah. great stunts. Because that, I was laughing. To them dancing on the seesaw while they're kicking each other. It looked bad to me. That looked like it was a rehearsal session that they accidentally edited in instead of the real take. Jacob, I, I love that scene. That scene made me laugh so hard. <laughs> yes, it's hilarious. I don't think it's supposed to be, though. <laughs> I hit up with a spoon. If you watch nothing else about that movie, I dare anyone to sit through that without their jaw hitting the ground. It is shockingly poor. On my first watching, I did not enjoy that scene, but it has come to grow on me. <laughs> I actually like it. It's pretty close to Catwoman where she's playing basketball with Benjamin Bratt. Almost there. <laughs> not quite as good, but almost there. Here's the thing that I like about that scene. First of all, if superheroes are going to flirt, I see this is how they would do it. You know, testing each other's powers. I think a lot of this would be a power play between them, right? They're used to being the most powerful. Keep in mind, she just met him. He asked for some honey and he's blind. And now they're at the playground flipping and trying to beat each other up. And that's my big biggest problem is here's the blind guy doing all the daredevil moves in public like all the little kids are going fight 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 i could go with this if this was in private but it's in public i would agree that it's a big problem for me is that he's totally risking his secret identity i mean what if foggy had walked by at that moment been like what the hell why am i helping you to your share it's all kinds of ridiculousness i mean it's terrible but what I like about it is Jennifer Garner's smiles and the way that it really comes off from her side that this is flirtation, that this is playful foreplay. And I like that about the scene. It doesn't make sense to me that it's in public. Like you said, Jacob, that's bothersome to me. I don't think Affleck played the scene right. Garner made me love the scene, though. I'll give you that she could flash a good smile. Yeah, she's real pretty. She's very photogenic in this. And I can understand how she would probably work on an action show where she has to be a seductress and then go into ninja mode. That seems to be what she can do. And I would like to see her do that in something worth watching. Maybe Electra will be that. I'm, I'm having a feeling that ain't it, but we can find out next week. <laughs> I don't feel like they have any chemistry at all, Arnie. I disagree. I don't get the sense that she is enamored with this guy any more than he is with her. They feel like people getting through it. The fact that they were actually, I presume, falling in love on this set or shortly thereafter, none of that chemistry comes through at all. Strangely, apparently he was still with the other Jennifer at this point, but reports are that the two rekindled a friendship when he showed up on the set of Electra, and that's where the romance actually began, not in Daredevil. He's in Electra? No. <laughs> Scenes all entirely excised. Bonus feature on the disc. We'll get there when we get there. Yeah. All right, so I don't have to deal with this suit again. All right, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you are right. In the playground scene, I get that she's into him. I get that from her. I don't get it when they're, you know, walking down the street or on the roof or any of that. And it's, again, Garner, it's because her character is trying to be so conflicted and everything that I just never really get that she's quite so into him to invite him to the ball. I get nothing out of this electric character. I don't understand how she makes Daredevil better at what he does. To me, it's like we need for him to have something to adore because every action movie must have a female protagonist and this is our one. And she is the mannequin on display and comes in way too late and taken out far too quickly. She does almost nothing here. One Evanescence montage <laughs> and a death scene. Yeah, what was with that montage? Was it just to get that Evanescence song into the movie? Because Had now be. she's fighting some sandbags. Well, we already know she knows martial arts. 
Right. She didn't have any toxic waste bath, so all of her agility and powers are not superpowers. They are normal powers that she has apparently been honing as a Greek princess sheltered girl with bodyguards all of these years. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense at all. I think that when she shows up in the movie, the movie takes off. The problem is she shows up too late. We agree in that. So now you're saying the plot of the movie is the love story? The love story is what touches his heart to make him want redemption and to want to be a good guy. Okay. All I can say is, for me, Electra feels like a Catwoman storyline being grafted in to the Batman template that they're already following. That they're in love with each other by day and don't realize that at night they're beating each other up. But it's so abbreviated. I mean, it's barely there. No sooner as she found out that he is the one she's in love with, then she's dead. And the other problem with her storyline is after her father is murdered, Matt tells her, hey, don't go out for revenge. It it won't do anything. I know. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, who did he get revenge on? When did this guy get revenge for his father's murder? What the hell is he even talking about? Right. He has not hung up the mask. That's what's irritating. He's like, oh, you can't follow this life as he's like zipping up. I think he's basically just saying, don't give in to the dark side. I gave in to the dark side. I let anger push me into the night. But he's still going out every night to fight bad guys. He never went out after the funeral, except to protect Elektra. Batman played a lot with this, too. I remember those kinds of discussions being about who am I when I'm putting on the mask, and does that make me good or bad? I just don't feel like it's scripted here at all. I feel like all of it is implied, but none of it is there. It's all vague, vague, vague subtext. And you're right. Consequently, I don't even know what the storyline's supposed to be. To me, following Batman, I think we've got to get back to the man that murdered his father, which is the Kingpin. Again, another actor who I just... I like him in everything I've seen him in, from The Green Mile, Armageddon. He's always a fun presence to me, and I think he's perfect casting for the Kingpin, right? I mean, a big guy who can fight, very imposing physical presence. I've never seen him in anything before, I don't believe. He's a Spider-Man villain, right? The Kingpin? This is a character from the Spider-Man world. Does he share this with Daredevil? Is this a Daredevil villain? Yeah, he started off in Spider-Man, but again, Frank Miller made him a much more prominent Daredevil villain, and that's really the way he's seen now. Kingpin's usually either going against Daredevil or the Punisher, but yes, he started off as a Spider-Man villain. And keep in mind, they both live in New York. The entire Marvel Universe lives in New York. I don't know why there's any crime in New York. <laughs> well, Ben Yurick works at the Daily Bugle with Spider-Man, yes. of course, because Spider-Man's owned by Columbia. Now Ben Yurick works at the Post. <laughs> uh, and Fox is making this as a Fox newspaper as well. But the thing is, I don't know Michael Duncan, but just physically, who else could play this role? You'd have to CGI this role. He's the only actor with the muscle mass and just the physical presence to pull this off. What I read was they took some screen tests with pro wrestlers and couldn't find any that could act. Hmm. It fits the character regardless of his color. And I don't know how much internet rage there was about the casting, but Michael Clark, Duncan works here because of the physicality. And the other thing, you know, Kingpin's always, I've seen him as a more serious character. I like that he's more streetwise and that comes out in him. So I didn't mind the way they took Kingpin in this film. I thought it really worked. I like him as a presence, but unfortunately that's all he really is to me because I feel like most of his scenes involve him standing in his penthouse, chomping on a cigar, looking out the window. I don't feel like he gets to do anything. He's the shadowy figure that's 
behind all the crime, but the criminals work for him. He doesn't do anything. So consequently, it's not very satisfying as a major villain. Well, in the director's cut, they actually added a scene, though, where he kills two of his own security guards. So I think that the director agrees with you. They needed to have something to make him an imposing physical presence as well as just the ghost behind the scenes. That said, that scene was ridiculous with him roaring and looking silly. So win-lose there. I mean, I'll just say here's another plot that's bouncing around in this movie half-heartedly that the media is discovering or the police are discovering that all crime in Hell's Kitchen is related to the Kingpin, so he's going to try to throw the scent off by framing someone that he actually just murders, which, you know, if crime keeps going on after this guy's murdered, it's hard to pin it on him. Like, they don't know what to do with the Kingpin in here. They need to have him in here, but they bring in another villain. I would have been happy just with the Kingpin here. It seems like he should be enough villain. Just by sheer mass, he should be enough for you. But you're right, they have to defer everything else to Bullseye because Kingpin really is nothing more than the final hurdle. Thank God they did. Colin Farrell. I barely knew who he was when this movie came out. I was a huge fan walking out of the theater. He brings such life and energy and fun. That's what this movie kind of misses is fun. Unless Colin Farrell's on the screen. Every twitch he brings. And, I mean, he's publicly said he was on a lot of substances during this, so the twitches <laughs> may or may not have been method. But every twitch and quirk he brings to Bullseye is just incredible fun for me. And Bullseye's a really fun character. He has a lot of charisma in the comics, and I thought this was a great translation. He is a person who kills people and does not have a second thought about it. He's very playful, and I thought Farrell really brought that to the screen here. He's just having fun. He's not taking anything seriously, and it's great to watch. People know I'm a Colin Farrell fan from Minority Report and Fight Night. I think he's fun to watch always, and he doesn't really have a great history of movies I love, but I always seem to love watching him in these not very great movies, and this continues that trend. I don't like Daredevil. I'll go ahead and put it out there, but I like Bullseye, and you're right. Every time he's on screen, this movie feels 20 times more thrilling than it does in any other moment. And I'm glad they added in some scenes to the director's cut because I just, I want more of him in this movie. Much like Elektra, I think Garner and Farrell are really the ones who just make this film sparkle with their energy. I want to get into this though. Are you going to say she's as interesting as he is? Are you actually going to say Garner is equal (laughs) to Farrell? Because that seems indefensible. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm saying she's number two. Farrell's number one. Okay. And what makes Farrell number one is, first of all, his intro with that House of Pain song going on. Love yeah. that. I, I just got to say, <laughs> Irish guy gets the House of Pain intro. Michael Clark Duncan, the black guy, gets the hip-hop music when he's introduced. It's interesting choices. That's all I'm going to say. But yes, I like that the House of Pain is playing for the Irish guy. What else do they have, really? And keep in mind, House of Pain is like 10 years on hip at this point. But they're like, <laughs> do we have anything else Irish that's raps? No? All right. I don't feel like the filmmaker's making great choices for Colin. Am I correct in saying that there's a lot more of him being bad in this director's cut, right? It takes him a while to get to New York. There's like, he kills an old lady on a plane. He has to have a fight in an Irish bar. Airport security. All that was added was the airport security scene and the stealing the bike scene. The old lady on the plane, which is perhaps my favorite scene in this whole movie, is just, was... It is the biggest jolt. Okay, and I'm surprised to hear that. I would have totally guessed that that got excised from a theatrical 
theatrical cut and only made it back at the director's insistence. But it feels like there's a lot of him, but then again, this movie could use a lot of him. I don't feel like Colin Farrell is being used well, but I am agreeing with you guys. He is useful, nonetheless, because he's fun to watch. I don't think every scene works like when he stands up on a motorcycle to throw ninja stars. That didn't work too much for you, but yes, for the most part, he works when he's on the screen. It worked for me. I was fine with him standing up on the motorcycle. I can think of one thing in this whole movie, and it's at the very climax, where I question his choice. But every other scene he's in, just absolutely love. If the movie had more of this, this could be tremendous. He's just unfortunately coming into it too late. He's there just to kill the nachos, right? (laughs) Both of them. (laughs) Yeah, what is the purpose that Kingpin hires him. He's running all of the crime gangs, all of it, in New York, and he has to outsource to Ireland? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense, especially when earlier they say they're just going to frame Nachios for being the Kingpin. Again, doesn't make sense to kill him, but then the next scene he's picking up the phone saying, get me Bullseye. What has Nachios even done? Uh, It's not clear, right? Nobody understands what it was that even caused his death. Oh yeah, I do. He says he wants out because the police are sniffing around and he wants to go legit. Yes, he wants out of some nebulous crime. Right. right? Okay, well, that's my point. It's like, we don't really know what they're doing. I guess it's not important. The only thing that is important is that he must die for being a coward, and Kingpin can think of nobody better to do this than Bullseye. Now, Stuart, you're not the comic book guy. Did you laugh when Bullseye requested a costume to the Kingpin? It was cute. I mean, his thoughts were where mine are, which is you can't be a cool person in this kind of movie without slinking into something skin tight. My problem was he doesn't get one. He says, I want a bloody costume, or if you're the director's got a fucking costume, and he never gets a fucking costume. Well, and that was a big point of contention, because in the comic, he does wear a costume. And that was one of the things they talked the director out of doing. It, originally, they were going to have him in a costume. Oh, wait, that wasn't a costume to you? It's funny. It's the same clothes he wore when he said, I want a costume. That coat, he's been wearing that coat since the pub. Yeah, in the comic, he has like a navy blue spandex outfit with a mask on that has a bullseye on the forehead. Yeah, I might have had a problem with that. Okay, (laughs) good choice. I much prefer the uh, Matrix outfit. I think it works better for him. The problem is the first Daredevil bullseye fight when he's going after Nicholas Nachios is over an hour into this film in the theatrical cut and much later in the director's cut. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? They could have done this in the first half hour, right? The dad could have died early, and then that would have given reason for Electra to be there, right? We wouldn't have even needed to see her before her dad was dead. I mean, this feels all in reverse, and it feels like so much has gone into the setup, and by the time it's time to get the payout, you're only going to get crumbs. And let us remind the listeners, this is still a flashback. <laughs> Like, this is still backstory to get us to where the movie started. That's true. I forget that we have a double flashback. I was wondering if the theatrical cut went that way. I assume that was a director's cut choice, that they start with Daredevil wounded and bloody atop a church and then take us all the way back to how he got there. But that's in every cut? That's in the theatrical cut, yep. Hmm. Then no sooner has Elektra become Elektra, then Bullseye takes her out. Yeah, how did they all end up on the same rooftop? Is that explained? in the director's cut? No. (laughs) You say that this is a big storyline in the comic. What are we missing here? I know it's got to be pages and pages. 
issues and issues. You got it right, Stuart, when you talked about the whole Batman, Catwoman thing where they're lovers in real life and they don't know about each other's secret identities and Elektra's really out to kill Daredevil, hired by the Kingpin. So there's this huge Shakespearean love romance going on where they don't really know about each other. So it was a big moment. They finally unveil each other. They know who they are. They're in love and Bullseye kills her. And so it's a big, impactful moment here. Yeah, they did it because it's in the comic book and it's one of the biggest storylines in the comic. It doesn't have any emotion for me, though. Mm-mm. You'd need to have them playing these games for 30, 40 minutes in order for it to work. They would have needed to have this ongoing for much of the movie in order for her death of impact. Otherwise, it just looks ridiculous. I mean, no sooner has she suited up than she's dead. And she's a trained assassin. I didn't like how quickly he was able to take her out. I guess, yes, she was supposed to be stunned because she had wounded her lover, but it just doesn't work for me the way they played out. No, I was laughing. And more to the point, I was waiting for her to come back alive. I thought, well, this is obviously some game and that we'll have some willy-nilly way to resurrect her, but credits roll, and I stayed till the last one rolled up, and... Same here. She did. Yeah, she did. She's dead. I agree with you both that there should have been more here. Pacing in this film is all off. Terrible. On the other hand, though, honestly, by the time we get to the Daredevil Bullseye electrified on the roof, I've kind of had enough ninja wire foo. You know, I enjoyed it. Wait, had they done any wire foo by this point? Because I've just been seeing bad CGI. There was some wire foo on the playground and some... Yes, but it's mostly awful CGI where they try to replicate what they had done in Spider-Man, and it's just they don't got the budget for it in this film. Mm-mm. We're going back to Blade 2 Ninja Fight here. <laughs> These look like when they're trying to map out how they want something to look and storyboard it. They have computer programs to be like, and then we'll shoot it this way and it will look great and whatever. And it looks like a colorist came in and colored it in and said, okay, we're done. These feel like the storyboards. What's shocking is how piss poor the CGI action is here. It looks truly like a video game you wouldn't want to play because the graphics are bad. I don't think it's as bad as you say with the Blade 2 thing. I think there are times when it goes really, really poor, but there's only a handful of them that I call out as really bad CGI. The rest? The most are just bad. Wow. No, yeah, no. Man, all I know is if it had involved puppetry in any way, you would have been screaming to high heaven, but somehow <laughs> you'll always give a pass to subpar CGI here. I don't understand. I'd say it's par CGI, not subpar. Just par. Okay, th- I think this is the crux of our debate about this film then, is that for me, these things are terrible for you, they aren't good. And that doesn't mean that they're unworthy. I just, I can't pick apart these things that I think are fine. They're not great, but they're fine. There's a few really bad CGI shots. A few. Really bad, yes. There's also a lot of decent CGI shots in here. There's a lot of shots in here that are CGI that I didn't realize were CGI. I don't have a problem with CGI that isn't an action moment, like when roses are falling down and all that. I'm like, oh, that looked like a screensaver, but... But see, but I can accept that because it's just what it is. But when we're jumping from a scene of clear people in outfits to their CGI replicants, it's jarring. It takes you out. I mean, that scene in the church where they're jumping up on the pipes and all of that. That was one of the really bad ones. That was really bad. Really, really bad. And they spend a long time on that fight. They don't cut away. Like, I don't get a sense of scale. This is like the hugest. I haven't been in many Catholic (laughs) cathedrals. But this organs like the Empire State Building that they're jumping on. It's ridiculous. It is. It's like giant wind chimes, too, isn't it? Yeah, they've shrunk or something. I wasn't even sure what 
hell they were on the first time I saw it. That is an inexcusably bad scene. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for backing me up. That's all I needed to hear. There is some CGI in this that is as bad as can be. Yes. Now, is all of it that bad? Maybe not. But those moments really, really hurt the action. So you're saying you're having fun in the action. I am a no-go on any of this action. Well, Jacob, you and I kind of had this discussion with Blade 2. Were you enjoying any of the fight scenes here, the choreography? I mean, this is the same choreographer who did Charlie's Angels and Matrix. Really? This is the same person as the Matrix? I guess they had a bigger budget because not much of this is working for you. Again, there's some very dark shots where it's passable, but this organ scene is awful. You know, when you get those Spider-Man scenes, you get that scene in Spider-Man where he's flipping to dodge all the things the Green Goblin's throwing at him. You get some very similar scenes in this film. Yeah, that looked all right. But overall, I mean, if it's taking me out, if it's making me chuckle because it's so bad, that's not a good thing. And I was chuckling a lot during a lot of this action. I was kind of into the action, but by the time it gets down to Bullseye versus Elektra, you know, I just didn't need to see more of her kicking and him throwing. And so to get to the stabbing pretty quickly, I was game for. His name is Bullseye. He's got to be throwing or shooting stuff. Right. And he can't miss that often or his name would be, you know, Horseshoe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Daredevil gets Bullseye down on his knees, and I can't get a read on Colin Farrell's line reading here. He begs for mercy. Is he being legitimate, or is he being sarcastic? I mean, Daredevil throws him out the window no matter, but it always struck me odd that this total badass throughout the whole film, he gets shot through the hands, and immediately he takes this, like, Christ-like pose and asks for mercy, and I don't know what they're trying to play there. I I think it just goes into the half-ass religious symbolism in this movie that bugged me so much where they want to say it's about faith and about redemption but they really don't want to follow any of that up and really delve into it it just doesn't go anywhere like most of this film totally agree with you jacob it feels like yeah it's cool when we have this religious imagery and it gives us a weight and portents that we don't otherwise have but it doesn't make any sense to me i I don't see it paying out it thematically or in any other way other than isn't that cool well what are we watching if we're not watching this storyline develop and hour before we're watching coolio or in jacob's case he's not i'm not watching coolio i am not in a gangster's paradise at this point (laughs) that's what i'm wondering here is was my experience of this film feeling so long because of coolio or would it feel long anyway all i can say is i didn't feel like this movie needed to be longer and giving it a director's cut seemed to be the wrong choice this thing needed to be cut down and coolio had to go It's a murder case. Coolio is going down the river for killing a hooker. Did this add anything to the plot? I mean, it gave Favreau something to do. It gave Favreau something to do. And again, I think Favreau was also up there with Garner and Farrell in bringing some energy and fun to this film. So having Favreau on the screen more makes me like the film more. That said, this problem goes way back to the original script because you have all these scenes and there's so many of them with Coolio and Foggy and Matt go and investigate the prostitute's apartment and Matt starts like putting his fingers on her keyboard and her desk to figure out what she's typed most often and what she wrote on a pad of paper on a wooden desk and all of that. And Matt knows because he can hear hearts. And I like this device. The fact that he can hear internal organs and that's his lie detector. He knows Coolio's innocent even though he's a weed smoking shotgun advocating hood rat. He believes that he didn't kill this particular prostitute. What does this have anything to do with Kingpin? It was very tenuous and I missed it the first time. I had to rewind to the scene after the funeral where Ben Urich explains it all is that she was his informant and she was dating 
dating Kingpin's right-hand man. The one with the streaks in the hair, blonde streak. Wesley, or wow, Wesley Owen Welch. That's the whole thing, is she knows who's killing her, and so she writes on a pad of paper, wow, eight... Nine. I didn't think that she knew he was going to kill her. I thought she was writing down like she has a date with him on 8-9. That makes more sense. Okay. So they just knew that she was meeting him on that date. So did you guys notice the actor who played Wesley recognize him for anything? Because I knew his face and he's been in another film with John Favreau. A very bad film. I don't know the film you were speaking of, but I know that we'll be discussing him in Alien Resurrection next year. Well, he was in Very Bad Things. Didn't see it. Nope. <laughs> so I, just, I. I took him at their word. If a title <laughs> like that, I agree. I can skip it. And Christian Slater. Ooh. Is, yeah. It, after the fall. But I found it fun. And the director's cut. These two have a scene together where Wesley isn't very nice to Foggy. So it was kind of fun to see that little on-screen reunion as a very bad thing. It's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. I agree. It's fun to see actors that have been in one role like Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic and then see them claw each other's eyes out in a movie like Revolution. Road, So that can be fun. I just don't know these two from that movie. So it really meant nothing to me. What is this all accomplished? Because I'm totally <laughs> lost now. I'm wondering what is the point of all this? This is the problem is we've spent all this time. And what this does is it gives Wesley a reason to turn evidence against the kingpin. So at the end, when Ben throws away that line, didn't you hear words out on the kingpin? The police are coming for you. It's actually the death of the hooker that causes the kingpin to fall. Nothing Daredevil does causes it except reading the Braille. Now, this is something Nolan does wonderfully, where he has lots of ancillary characters who do this kind of detective work. It's not Batman doing everything. And and these kind of plots can come up, and they do feel integrated. But here, you're right. I can't believe we spent so much time following dead hookers and Coolio to be that's the thing that brings down Kingpin. Daredevil doesn't even have to throw a punch. In fact, he barely does. When he finally gets to Kingpin, he basically just says, cops are coming, and the guy falls falls on his knees and goes, you're blind, and cries. Well, no, he actually, I think, shatters the kingpin's knees. Yes, he kicks his knees. That's how he defeats the kingpin, kicking his <laughs> knees. Uh. No one's asking these kinds of questions. I did. When I was watching the theatrical cut, I'm like, how did word get out on the kingpin? Because I thought Bullseye was dead. Electra was dead. So how did word get out? So my notes, I actually have, how did the word get out on the kingpin? <laughs> See? <laughs> All right, you may be right. I may have asked that question if I didn't see it. This did bother me in the theatrical cut. The director's cut fixed it, but it took 25 minutes to fix it. That's not exactly right either. That's a script problem that should have been handled before being filmed. Before anyone was ever cast in the Coolio role. This whole thing needed to be tightened up. I'm cool with keeping Bullseye Kingpin because that's true to the comic. I like what Colin Farrell did. You'll never get me to say take Bullseye out of this. But somehow, the death of the father, the death of the hooker, Kingpin, they all need to have a tighter knit bond so that it seems like one cohesive thread rather than all these various strands scattered about that just never come together. And Daredevil needs to do something because it's Favreau doing all the court stuff. It's the secretary that translates the wow message. I mean, Daredevil literally accomplishes almost nothing here. But the one big thing for Daredevil is he doesn't kill the Kingpin. The Daredevil at the beginning of the movie, knowing Kingpin killed his father because of the whole Rose thing, that he would have killed Kingpin. And here, because of Elektra and the human contact, he lets Kingpin go to jail and just is served. Yes, which I would characterize as more of not doing anything. 
Well, it would have been neat if there was some tension, if you're wondering if he really was going to kill him, if somehow he swore to Electra's dead body that he would never kill again, that he learned his lesson. Right. But no, I got to piece all this together after the movie when I'm thinking about it, trying to put all these puzzle pieces together. I feel like I'm a blind man feeling around trying to connect the dots with this film. And it's insincere. The man didn't hang up the cowl and hit the books and be a better lawyer. He is going out. It's very established very clearly with the relationship he forms with the reporter. He's going to keep going out and beating up the people that he's not good enough to put away through the methods that he's been trained. (laughs) So that's what you get for a pro bono lawyer. You better hope he is blind and puts on some kind of dominatrix outfit in the evening if you're going to get your justice served because he ain't going to be able to do shit when it comes time to go to court. Now, I was said I enjoyed the fight, but when Daredevil and Kingpin get into it, my eyes roll. I mean, everything up to this point was very exaggerated, but I was going with it. When Michael Clark Duncan just picks up Daredevil by his arm and throws him 20 feet across a room, I'm like, give me a break. This is stupid. I'm not enjoying the fight anymore. Now they are doing some wire food and it looks very bad. The Kingpin, that guy is huge. I mean, if you've seen him in the comic, he's like an elephant. He's like 500 pounds, just this huge mass. And if he threw you, he wouldn't even have to try to throw you 20 yards and you'd go that far. But it just looks so bad. It looks too effortless. And I would have preferred a variety of fighting styles. You know, I think he'd be more of a close quarters fighter. He'd be pummeling you. Well, yeah, he even drops the line. He's like, he tells the security guy to leave him. And what does he say? This is a street thing you wouldn't understand. Even though that's the guy who kills hookers in his spare time. But he won't understand. (laughs) I didn't know that, but... (laughs) Yeah, this should be like martial arts versus street fighting. Yes, get some different combat styles in there. No, we're just going to get bad wire food throwing him around the room till he sets off the sprinklers <laughs> so he could see him better. Yeah, that was a fight that did not work for me. And I really, as I've probably come across on this, this film was very borderline for me. And then this came and it's like, oh, God, this is the first moment where I'm just like, end just kind of end. You've outstayed your welcome in both versions, and it's not any worse in the longer cut. It's just this is the point that I can't go with the fight. And let me ask you guys this, since you saw this director's cut, after he defeats the Kingpin, Daredevil drops this line about how he now he has faith that anything is possible, and someday's faith is all you need. I know there's a lot of religious themes. When did he lose faith, or what did he lose faith? Like, again... He's a guardian devil! Huh? <laughs> yeah, like... You can thank Kevin Smith for that line, by the way. Ooh, well, I will not thank him <laughs> for that line. I think that is an oxymoron, and I think... But that- were there ever any, besides showing churches, were there themes of faith in this movie, and I just missed it? Yes, there were more conversations with the priest. Yeah, if you watch this director's cut, it's just a litany. You'd think you'd be watching The Godfather. It, it sounds like I might have enjoyed this director's cut more because it's filling in all these things that I actually wanted in the film, but... The director's cut improves a lot. If you're even marginal on this one way or the other, Jacob, I suggest going back and view the director's cut. If you're as down on Daredevil as Stewart seems to be, well, then fuck it. It's not worth your time. But if you're like in the weak to moderate not recommend, give this director's cut a try because I find it to be far more cohesive, if not a little bit too long. And I'm just going to remind you one more time, Affleck is still in the director's cut. (laughs) One thing before we finish up here, it stood out, and since I know Electra's coming next week, I gotta ask. They do a thing where he finds her pendant. She's not coming back to live. I keep waiting for the she's back scene. He finds her pendant, and it's in Braille. 
what did that mean to you guys? Was her mom blind? Is that does she have a thing for the seeing impaired? Is that what that reveal was about? No, she had that made for him. Because he, there's the scene on the roof, and he talks about the necklace. Yeah, it's her mom. She gave it to him at an early impressionable age. And he asks if there's one in Braille. Oh, I missed that. Okay, all right. And then she just hangs it up for him to find someday, I guess? Because he has faith that anything's possible now? Well, I, I assume it's going to be what brings her back. Maybe I'm wrong. Y- yeah, you're wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing. Per the director, when this movie's credits roll, Electra's dead. Now, I viewed that pendant as maybe she's not, but per the director, they killed Electra. The heart stopped beating. Well, then you've really given me at least a small reason to be curious about next week. God knows that's what brought me back for Electra. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, when this film was in theaters, I was kind of disappointed and immediately left as soon as the credits rolled. So I never knew until this review that there's a credit scene that Bullseye live. I was hoping he would live. I mean, isn't that Daredevil's redemption? That's how he learns he's not the bad guy by letting the bad guys live, but bringing them to justice, even though he's violently throwing them out of church windows. uh, (laughs) I did not think Colin Farrell had lived when he landed on the cop car hood. So I don't think that's through any of Daredevil's doing that he happens to be, you know, in a body cast at the end throwing hypos at flies but (laughs) yeah bullseye's survival is through no act on daredevil it's merely daredevil didn't finish what he set out to do the way bullseye landed on that hood was the landing of a dead man which means daredevil has no story arc then he remains the bad guy through the entire film except he lets the kingpin live for some reason if that if that's how they're playing it out well it's a relief that if i ever do have to watch a daredevil sequel that at least we might have the hope of having a fun villain like feral in it again were there talks to bring him back for a sequel i mean they're always talking sequels before the first film's even out people are pretty mum about a lot of this and we're going to talk about this more when we get to Electra. but all i can find anyone saying on the record was we looked at making a daredevil film and possibly doing a spinoff of Electra. Kind of how they have X-Men and did a spinoff of Wolverine. Had this film been a bigger hit? Had Ben Affleck's career not hit nuclear meltdown with Gigli? Maybe. But those things did happen, and we will never see Ben Affleck back in the S&M gear. Or presumably uh, Colin Farrell as Bullseye, which is kind of sad. He played a good Bullseye. It's worth it to not see his bullseye again <laughs> if I can be scared everyone else is again. Although I guess we're getting Electra next week, so I don't even know what's coming back besides her. Can we all agree that next week would be far more exciting to us if we knew we were watching the bullseye spinoff? Yeah, I, I yes. take it to mean that he's not in the spinoff. I, pre- I would have presumed that anyway. I haven't looked at the credits list, but I'm guessing that Jennifer Garner signed a contract that said you will be back and everyone else didn't have that three picture deal. All right. Jacob Stewart, do you dare recommend Daredevil? Jacob? Here's the funny thing. When I first saw this, and this was back right when it came out on video, and a friend asked me what I thought about it, and I said, eh, it reminded me a lot of Burton's 89 Batman, and, you know, that film's all right. It's got its issues, and this film's the same way, so I guess that would be a soft recommend. Watching it this time, I did not like this film. You know, 
there's so much debate. Movies, you should just be able to turn your mind off and enjoy it. And I think that's how I was the first time I watched it. I just, you know, threw it on the TV and watched it. This time, for now playing, we're always much more critical. We're paying more attention. And like I've expressed, I don't know what the story is with this film. Now, it looks like maybe that director's cut fills in some of those gaps, maybe tells a little bit better story. But that's not what I saw. I saw the theatrical cut, and there's plot points all over the place. Things just don't gel. Sorry, Ben. You're not the daredevil. You're not my hero. He doesn't work for me. There are things to like here. We talked about Colin Farrell. We talked about Michael Clark Duncan. But there is so little of the film. So action's poor. Story's poor. Acting's poor. Not recommended. But... I am, you know, it's not going to go to the top of my Netflix queue, but in a few months, maybe I'll check out that director's cut. Well, why don't you post your thoughts in the forums and let us know if that changed your mind? I will. Stuart. Affleck says it all himself. At the end, he's gloating, I'm the good guy, because he doesn't believe in capital punishment, I guess. I do. You're executed. This movie fails solely because of him. I can imagine actually modestly recommending this mess of a movie if he had a really fun, charming, charismatic guy in the lead with all the other people, Colin Farrell and Duncan Clark and Garner. They could have worked something out of this, but this movie succeeds because you aren't the good guy. It's dead on arrival because you're not the good guy. And this movie is not changed my opinion one iota about Ben Affleck after Paycheck. In fact, it has made it only more toxic. Not recommend. And for me, you know, when I walked out of this theater, having seen Daredevil, I was a bit chagrined. I realized that it didn't even meet the expectations I wanted of, you know, if I was a smoker and Spider-Man was a cigarette, this wasn't even as good as picking up somebody else's used butt out of an ashtray. <laughs> uh, Kingpin might do that. <laughs> but that was my initial reaction as I came into this movie very hyped. And I was let down by what I was given. But as I've had more time to watch this movie for what it is, I've come to give it a begrudging respect for the things it does right. A lot of that being Colin Farrell. When I did walk out of the theater the first time, I was enamored with Bullseye out of this film. I like Michael Clark Duncan in this film. I like Jennifer Garner in this film. And when I watched the theatrical cut, which I watched first for this review, I was very borderline. I'm like, oh, do I recommend it? Do I not recommend it? I just couldn't decide. And then when I watched the director's cut, a lot of more things gelled. And it's still a problematic film. It is a troubled film that has script problems. It has casting problems. But there are some good things here, and I have a good time watching it. And I'm going to give it a weak, weak recommend, especially for the director's cut. I recommend the director's cut over the other cut. And so while I'm giving this the green arrow up, that's on the director's cut improvements that do provide much more character depth because I felt like the original cut had no character depth at all. And if the whole arc of the movie is on Daredevil's character, you gotta have that. And while Affleck may not play it right, at least it's there and you're able to see it even with a poor performance. So yeah, I'm gonna give this one a recommend. Again, I like superhero movies and this one is an enjoyable time for a superhero movie. It's not A-list. It's where we said Daredevil was. It's a C-list film, but I'm not going to tell you don't see it. I'm not going to not recommend it. So yes, I recommend on Daredevil. 
I get where you're coming from in this much. I don't dislike the character. You know, last time when we were dealing with Blade or Fantastic Four, I was really just struggling with what was probably always on the page. I just, I'm not into it. With Daredevil, I see the potential. I do think he's got a lot of cool traits. I really do feel like the failures of it are in the way it's been imagined for this screen on this budget with these writer, director, and actor involved. We're going to get another shot at Daredevil. A reboot, a sequel, something is going to come up because the movie rights go up in 2013. They have to be rolling on something by that time. So I'm convinced by 2013, 2014, I know they're already in active pre-production on this. We're going to see another Daredevil. Are you guys excited about this? Are you hopeful that they'll maybe get closer to what you like about the comic? I am. I mean, I always want to go in optimistic until you start hearing the casting and all that, but I like the character Daredevil. I think he could tell a great story. This is a cool character. He's blind. He knows martial arts. You know, he's actually really smart, and he's a lawyer during the day. Like, there's a lot to the character, and in the right hands, you can make a great film out of that. And, you know, I think Daredevil is a character that is beloved either by the more grown-up people who, like, want a more dark and grown-up Spider-Man, or for the people who I know a lot of these, they don't want to like an A-lister. You know, they like to like the background characters, and Daredevil's the one for them. And with the Frank Miller comics, there's a huge fan base. I'd love to see Daredevil franchised. I mean, I would not be opposed to a sequel. I mean, the same director did Ghost Rider. Oh, God. (laughs) It was his follow-up film to Daredevil was Ghost Rider. God, I still got that face in me coming in the future. (laughs) And they didn't just say, well, screw it. After Ghost Rider, we're going to reboot it. They got in, hopefully, more talented to directors for Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance that we're going to review weekend of release in February. So I don't think that what we have here, I mean, I recommended it. It's certainly not irreparable. It could be a lot better. So I don't know that it needs to be rebooted. I definitely want to see the character done better than here to really love a Daredevil movie. It just depends on how well the studio treats it and how they portray it. You had a lot of problems with the costume, Stuart, and they're in a lose-lose, aren't they? You're forced to make a movie about a guy who runs around in a red, horny outfit. (laughs) And Arnie, Daredevil, Spirit of Vengeance... I get it. Daredevil's bad. Nicolas Cage has a certain something about him where I think you could bring him back. We'll talk about if he ruins that film as much as Ben Affleck ruined this film for Stuart and I. If they do a sequel, I don't know who I want as Daredevil. I know I don't want Ben Affleck. And Ben Affleck doesn't want it either. He has definitely gone on record and made it very clear not only will he never play Daredevil again, he will never play a superhero again. Well, he was Superman. Yeah, well, (laughs) that's actually when he went on record. People were asking about that on doing the press junket. On Hollywood land, he was asked these kinds of questions. That's where he made it pretty plain. I'll give him props for that. He has figured out what his limitations are and what he enjoys doing. I think it's directing with a little bit of acting when needed, when it's right for him. I think he's found his niche. That's my saving grace for Ben Affleck. I have not been kind to these performances, but I think he's figured it out what he is good at, and he's staying away from this kind of junk in the future. But instead of sequeling this, even though it broke the President's Day weekend record of all the people who didn't have Valentine's Day dates going to see it, they decided to go a different way and focus entirely on Jennifer Garner, and next week we will get to see the sequel slash spinoff Electra. I actually am very curious as to how they're going to handle this. It's not evident to me that this is needed or what it would even be about, so high curiosity, if not exactly high expectations. 
Yeah, I've never seen this one. This is one of the few Marvel movies I have never seen. I haven't even watched a couple minutes of it when they replay it on FX over and over. They do? They do. I've seen it scheduled. That's why I usually turn it from FX. Up next, Electra, And up next, I change the channel. And if you can't wait for next week, why don't you look into your wallet and see if you can find 10 bucks? Because that's going to get you Exorcist 3 this Friday, as well as the previous two Exorcists and the Dual Part 4s. That's our donation series. We're getting into Halloween, and I'm enjoying it. So hopefully you can find the money. And if you got even a little bit more, it's going to get you in a few weeks... The Thing. And this one, I'm really excited. I, I can't wait to revisit all of them. We got the original 1950s movie, the John Carpenter crazy 80s movie, and this new reboot, semi-sequel, prequel, whatever it is. I'm definitely... I'd be seeing this movie in theaters even without Now Playing. And remember, it's your donations that help keep Now Playing on the air. We need to pay for bandwidth. We need to pay for these 3D movie tickets for things like Fright Night and our operation costs. And we need listener support. We have no advertisers. So even if you can't donate the full 25, if you can do a little more than 10, it really does help us out considerably. So we thank you for supporting us and we appreciate your donation to our series. And again, we aren't selling podcasts. We don't sell podcasts. These are a thank you to those who support us. And you know, if you can give more than 25 and really help out the show, we appreciate that as well. We bring you content on a weekly basis. And again, we say, don't think about the bonus podcast when you donate, but think about the content we put out on a weekly basis with the bonus content we did for everybody like Final Destination. We're a show that really tries to give back, but we need listener support to keep doing this. So please, if you can, please give. There's a link at the bottom of our homepage, a little PayPal button, and $10 or more for all five Exorcist films, 25 or more also adds in the thing. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. We still got Lecter coming. Very excited about that one. Starting with Manhunter, his non-Anthony Hopkins original film debut, all the way to his non-Anthony Hopkins prequel, Hannibal Rising. We're going to be doing all five of those films for Halloween. No charge on that. Uh, We hope to see you there. But for now, justice is served. As for Daredevil, Hell's Kitchen is my neighborhood. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night. Watching from the darkness, forever in darkness, a guardian devil. Thank you for listening to the now-playing Daredevil Electra movie retrospective series, part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Is that really necessary? Necessary? No. It was fun. And we dare you to come to NowPlayingPodcast.com, where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Fantastic Four, X-Men, Blade, Howard the Duck, and more, as well as reviews of non-comic book films like Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and Inception. There will be more coming. What's coming next will be worse. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. You know the great strength of the church? Its sense of community. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Somebody's been talking. Somebody always does. Oh, speaking of bills, your client, Mr. Lee, he made his first payment. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. 
Yeah, well, I go salsa dancing on the weekends, but I don't shake my ass to pay my phone bill, you know what I'm saying? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Because if you don't, I'll just keep breaking into your house. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Oh, come on, man. I'm throwing you gold. Give me my money. Now Playing's Daredevil Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. Do you want to learn something really, really difficult? Credits read by Brock. What about you? Because I can. Because I'm not afraid. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. As you're returning in this matter, I advise you to take no further action. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You talking riddles, old man. It keeps my students alert. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Are you finished? We only have an hour to prepare for court. Justice is served. I want a bloody costume. I'm Arnie, your podcast host without fear. And I can prove I have no fear because I've recommended Friday the 13th Part 8 and I continue to show my face on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I want a fucking costume. So Daredevil continue. I want a bloody costume. Setting of in there with you know even though Exorcist was DC I mean if what are you talking about is DC Washington DC oh I thought you were talking about Detective Comics <laughs> it's really it's like, comic? wait a minute oh. <laughs> there's a comic a Linda Blair <laughs> so did I <laughs> I want a fucking costume if. I told you to go make a uh, cloak and dagger movie and you're going to have to put dagger in some kind of white outfit and she wears white lycra in the comic. I mean, are you going to just have somebody walking down the street in a dance suit? As long as she has the boob window. <laughs> does, does dagger have that? I thought power. Oh, girl. yes. She has a big dagger shaped slit going down her suit. Noted. I'm looking forward to that TV show now, but... I have no idea what you guys are talking about. You're saying Cloak and Dagger, and I'm thinking Dabney Coleman and Henry Thomas. You introduced me to the Cloak and Dagger characters in the 80s, Stuart. Arnie, I I don't even know what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay, let me rephrase. If I tell... I'm trying to think of a spandex person. I want a bloody costume. You're going to recommend this movie? Truth be told, I haven't decided yet. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's proceed. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to discuss. I mean, I want a fucking costume. We have anything else Irish that's wraps? No. Well, All it right. could be I get knocked down and I get up again, right? No, they're British. I think they're Scottish. Yeah, Chumbawamba. No, they were they're, wimpy they're from even the UK. then. I want a fucking costume. I mean, come on, guys. You guys are the sticklers for this. Don't act like this is my problem. Honestly, the- I, I said it's not my. I said it's a problem for me, Stuart. I'm, I'm backing you up here. Uh, I think I, that right, there are. Let's hear if from I can you. get a fucking word in edgewise, I would say something. But <laughs> I, I don't. I want a bloody costume. Jennifer Garner looks good in this film, but man, was I distracted. I think in certain scenes they like CGI'd her eyes to be neon green. Huh? Didn't notice. 
I'm right there with you, Stuart. I did not know. I guess I was going blind during this film. <laughs> you couldn't hear her eyes? No, I, 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 perhaps if this film was radioactive, my super, my senses would have become super, but no, I was just going blind from boredom. I want a fucking costume. 